it's the most beautiful poetry on the surface. But if you really know the context, it's the dirtiest, dirtiest mutt. It's <laughs> pornographic. Welcome to Mosaic of China, a podcast about people who are making their mark in China. I'm your host, Oscar Fuchs. Well, thanks very much for all the comments on last week's episode with Greg Nance. It was a real honor to be part of Greg's process of speaking more openly about his past in public. And I think all of the comments his stories received reflect the support that he'll be sure to get in the future. Good luck to you, Greg. Since last week, there hasn't been much change in the situation with the coronavirus in China. It's the beginning of March 2020, and now it's the world outside of China that is becoming more of a source of anxiety. It looks like any new rules coming into effect here will be about protecting people in China from those arriving from other countries and potentially bringing the virus back in. What a mess. Today's conversation is with Gigi Chang, and like all of the remaining episodes of the season, it was recorded way before today's current situation. Gigi works as a literary translator, so if you're someone who in any way deals with words or language, then you should really enjoy this one. My chat today is with Gigi Chang. Uh, Gigi is a translator. I've uh, been living here in Shanghai for nine years yeah. now. Um, and as you know, we start all of these conversations with an object. So what object did you bring in that in some way exemplifies your life here in China? I brought my clipboard, um, mm. which I suddenly discover how useful it is when I start to translating because often what I work on, I might not have a physical book, I just get a digital document and it's so much easier to work when it's get printed out. And a clipboard is perfect because it's really hard. So you can stand it up on a stand or just, you know, prop it up somewhere. And it's very easy to write on. I never thought I would be using a clipboard ever in my life other than, you know, when you were at school taking attendance. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's perfect. You know, you can probably on a plane, you're probably on a train. It's extremely handy. <laughs> I love it for its sheer banality. Yes. <laughs> have you had the same one the whole time? or have you uh, No, this is uh, my second or third one. And the best thing is you also clip a pan onto it. You know, I've never seen such a technological advance in yeah. this room before. It's, yeah. it's quite something. Yeah. <laughs> I use the iPad as well, but it, you can't write as fast as pen and paper. Mm. And because you can't flip back and forth so easily. Right. Because, you know, I can easily jump from page 20 to 40. But with a digital document, yeah. it's I can't put them side by side. Mm. And so I guess what you're doing there in that instance is you're cross-referencing something you've said before and you want to be consistent. Yeah, yeah. or are these two passages really similar or... you? I guess I'm so of an age that I find it much easier to read on paper. Mm. <laughs> I'm not sure that's an age thing because I think there's something tactile, you know, it's something which is connected when you touch something and yeah. then you actually take something in. And right? I think it, it's also sort of habit as well. You go to a lecture hall now, students are taking notes on the computer. I type really fast, but I wouldn't be able to type notes on a computer because mm. it won't make any sense. Mm -mm. Well, how did you fall into this line then? Like, was it always your dream to become a translator? Um not really. It's really by accident. So I grew up in Hong Kong, but I went to university in London. And then I worked for the VNA on a Chinese project. That's the Victoria and Albert Museum, right? Yes, that's, that's right. Um, and at that time, it was between 2005 and 2008, Beijing Olympics was coming up. So there were actually all around the world, there are lots of special events or projects or displays about China. 
But at that time, ethnic Chinese international students tend to either come from Hong Kong, Taiwan, or um, the Chinese diasporas around the world. Mainland Chinese students were still very much of the rarity. And particularly in a workplace, you have very few Chinese speakers. And also at that time in mainland China, there are very few English speakers or people that aren't Chinese who can speak Chinese. So basically, I was the assistant on the project. So anyone else in the museum that needed help communicating with their Chinese artists would come to me because they're not going to my boss. Mm, nice. <laughs> yeah. So that's how I started doing my first translations. Um, some of them published as well in catalogues published by the museum. That was the practical side. And the other side is that I love theatre. And I was in London. I've seen literally hundreds of performances. And I've never seen a single Chinese play in English. You know, you see a lot, not a lot, but you see a fair amount of translations from Europe, from Russia, from South America, um, from Japan, from most other parts of the world, but not China, which... Mm. In terms of pure sort of population statistics, you know, one of the ancient civilizations, yet like you can't right. name a story, you can't name a song, you can't mm. name anything. Mm. You probably can't even name a famous person mm. like other than the few political figure. You can't name a writer. Something doesn't feel right about that. Mm. Um, and so at that point, I also translated um, a play because I thought, well, maybe I'll put it on with my friends. And that was just voluntarily, like you hadn't been asked. No, no, no. That was just, I was going to put it on with a friend because mm. we were both aspiring to be um, theatre producer at that point. Yeah. And so this is how you've landed into your particular niche, right? You yeah. have been translating cultural artefacts, including theatre, all this time since then, right? Yes. What I want to know is how do you even start? You know, you've got this literary piece, which is yeah. imbued with thousands of years of Chinese culture. How do you even go about translating that into English? You need to know who's going to read it, why it is being translated. This is the same as like writing anything, you know, why am I writing it? Once you work out that big question, then it's much easier to work out all the other big questions. What does it feel like reading it? Is it a difficult read? Is it difficult on purpose? Each piece of writing, there's always something a little bit different. There's a texture to it, just like fabric or like food, you know, it's, is it crunchy or soft? And then how to bring that sense into the reading experience as well. And it's like peeling an onion or going on a treasure hunt. You're given a map, you have a roadmap, you have some information, but you have to get to it. And are you influenced just by the words on paper or is it also a function of meeting the author or just knowing the, the context? Sadly, I mean, a lot of what I work on now are works from the past, but um, you can still find out a lot about them by reading the text. You know, that person, it exists in those, between those words. Right. And interestingly, when you say peeling the layers of the onion, how many times do you have to read through until you find that, okay, I'm getting the sense of it? Or does it come even on your first read? I personally tend to read the thing through before I start because right. mostly I just don't want surprises that I didn't expect. And mm. then, you know, I've gone down this direction and then right at the end I realise they've actually gone down the other direction and sometimes it's very difficult to backtrack because you set your mind on something. Then you have to completely, mm. you know, uproot yourself and rethink everything which is quite difficult 
And did you did you learn that by experience or was that something which you innately knew from the start? Um, most of the things in the beginning I translate are quite short, so it's not difficult to read it through. And when I was younger, I absolutely lo- love Harry Potter. Oh, right. And you can see because as she writes, I think she intended to go say right, but the story eventually went left, mm. and then you can see like the loose ends hanging out, hanging down because you know the story so well. Mm. And I, w- I wouldn't say it's a short for it's an, it's a natural process mm. because you know, like a human being, you know, identical twins, you have exactly the same genetic makeup. You grew up in the same family. You you still end up being different people. Mm. It's a little bit like that. Mm. So, if you know where exactly everything is going to go, then the surprises are only going to be small within the text. Got it. Okay. Well, that's that's the process writ large. What about then the minutiae? Like, uh, can you give us an example of uh, one of your recent translations where you know you really had to wade through something quite dense? Um, so the book that I just translated and just came out is called Legends of the Condor Hero by Jin Yong. And it's a book that's been written in the 1950s and been read by literally millions of Chinese, mm. um, made into very popular TV shows in Asia as well. Um, and so it's a martial arts fiction. So it's got a lot of Kung Fu and fighting, um, not just fighting and also learning Kung Fu as well. A bit like bits of Star Wars where, you know, you spend a lot of time training to be a Jedi, mm. but all of that written in words. Right. And it is a historical fiction as well, set in the 1200s. And with Chinese martial arts, it's all rooted in Chinese classics, you know, philosophy and Taoism and deep stuff like that, Mm. (laughs) which no one is particularly familiar with unless you're a specialist. Even even in China? Even in China, like we would have an idea, but you wouldn't know the content. Mm. Um, So some of it is, for example, um, the Kung Fu master teaches his disciple a move. But these are like high level ultimate moves. So it is not like an outside slap someone or smack someone (laughs) or punch someone. It's all about channeling internal energy and chi and things that are very, very abstract. Mm. You can't see and there's no movement. And there was this one particular passage which gave me headaches for days is that the master explaining this move verbally by quoting um, Chinese classics but he's also saying this actually out loud to his student. So first and foremost, if you're translating or writing a speech, it has to sound like speech. The individual sentence structure still has to be speech-like. Um, I think we've, we've all seen movies where that hasn't been done very well. Right? No, yeah, <laughs> and you're kind of like, what? <laughs> yeah, interesting. Yeah, so, so there's that. So something got to throw naturally, this sort of speech rhythm and sentence structure and um, length and pauses. Um, so that is a very particular way of organising information. Mm. And then at the same time, we've got this talk of abstract flow of energy you know what what can i draw on that can explain is it blood circulation or breathing you know something that i can use as a model when i think about it and then lastly i have these um quotes from the old classics Mm. so those got to sound a bit different from everything else he's saying as well because they are different. Mm-hmm. You know, if you quote a line from Shakespeare, you 
you can hear the textual difference, even though yeah. we still use all the words mm, and we might even whole, use that sentence structure. It's, it's the whole cadence of it, right? Yes, yes. So it's, it's sort of trying to get all of that in within the package or the limitation of natural speech. Right. I mean, this is, yeah, that's exactly the kind of jigsaw puzzle that I wanted you to try yeah. and unpiece. And yeah. like, how does that come? Do you like have to look at the text, then you have to have a bath or go for a run <laughs> and it suddenly comes to you? Or do you just sit there and you have to try and drill it into your head? Like um, so I now, I didn't used to work like this, but now I just put down the meaning as much as I could mm. and then probably go off and do something else. <laughs> yeah. And then come back and try to shape it like kneading doll. Mm. Keep kneading until it forms. Mm. <laughs> and keep trying this, trying that, trying this, trying that, you know, cutting, pasting, turning sentences, you know, around, moving them up and down until you get there. Do you use dictionaries and thesauruses or do you try not to? Um, I do use dictionaries mm. and thesauruses. I've got probably four or five mm. open at the same time mm. yeah you might not use the words they suggest but they can prompt your mind to think of right. other things because which of the two is actually most rich you know if you look at Shakespeare how many new words he created and then of course there's a whole culture of creating new words in in, in English but with the Chinese that I know when you have two concepts in two different Chinese characters and you bash them together and they create a word, there's multiple combinations. Yeah, because yeah, like, Chinese language is modular, so you can yes. create anything. Mm. That sometimes makes it quite difficult to translate. Mm. But at the same time, you also have a freedom. Ultimately, you're working for both the author as well as the reader. And also yourself. Like and myself as well, obviously. Mm. But... It has to be understood by your particular reader or audience. So they will help you make a lot of decisions on what to do. Interesting. And so when you do have a problem, do, do you collaborate with other people? Or how do you, when you really do reach a dead end, how do you mm. finally solve it? Um, so with this novel, I'm translating with um, another translator, Anna Homewood, and she translated the first volume. In, in fact, she probably dealt with the biggest and toughest questions of style and tone. So when I translate, my difficulty is understanding how she came to the system, mm. but the system is there. So I need to find the tools and use it rather than completely create the tools myself. Um, but obviously, as the story progresses, then we have new characters, we have more, more powerful Kung Fu. I then will have to use her tools to create new tools to get to these new concepts. Right. Yeah. So you're almost, you've almost got another extra master. You've got, yes. you've got the author, the audience, and, and you've um, got the other translator. Yes, but usually translation is quite a lonely work because, you know, you're just with yourself. Um, if you're lucky, you can talk to the author as well. So it it's really nice to have like a team the two of us we can talk through problems and you know if mm. you're really stuck then you know the other person might have a better idea by talking about it it already helps yeah and then eventually you will find a solution because you have to <laughs> well i guess that, that leads me to my my last question in terms of the collaboration because i'm guessing that this is where there could be the biggest problems when mm. it comes to translating, especially as you said, if the author is still alive, like, can you think of any moments where things haven't gone so smoothly in your process? Um, I think so. a lot of the times will 
be when you're working with someone who has never had anything translated before. So say, you know, someone have a product and they needed it translated into English. Some people might want it very, very close to what they've written in, say, the Chinese, but it might not work for that particular market because mm. of the different ways people understand things culturally, you know, how you sell things, or, you know, how you market things is different. It's almost like an anthropological yeah, experiment. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's much more cultural mm. rather than language. Yes, I can give you a more or less the same thing, but the result would be very different. So with that sort of experience, sometimes, you know, you might get your collaborators not seeing that cultural difference point. Mm. This is beyond linguistics or language. And they might insist on doing it their way. But that's when it gets quite difficult because you don't want to do something that you know isn't going to work. But then you try to explain they might not understand Mm. or because it's the first time they do it, they didn't understand because they haven't seen it fail. Mm. (laughs) And then the next time they do it, they might probably the same person won't have the same problem as well because, you know, they learned. It's something that you have to learn um, by being, you know, in between cultures and move around. And it's always difficult for for someone to trust a complete stranger entirely with their baby, basically, right. you know, to convey, you know, who they are. Right. So I think it's also a matter of trust. And this is something that comes with, you know, experience and and failures. <laughs> right. Well, thanks so much. That's work, fascinating. Yeah. Now, part two. What's your favourite China-related fact? Um, so I said I love theatre, and some years ago I discovered that Noel Coward mm. wrote Private Lives in Shanghai at really? the Cathay Hotel, which is the Peace Hotel. And I think he got a cold or like influenza and he got stuck. It just, this sort of utterly, utterly sort of very English, you know, upper-class play is written in, in Shanghai. Shanghai in 1930. Wow. Question two. Do you have a favourite word or phrase in Chinese? Um, no, I can't say anything in particular, but I just love the um, versatility of the language. Mm. It's, like, it's very, very versatile. And um, the illusions it could make. Um, something that I was uh, working on quite recently is the most beautiful poetry on the surface. But if you really know the context, it's the dirtiest dirtiest smut it's pornographic <laughs> wow but it's also the most beautiful poetry and there's not a single dirty word there's nothing wrong it, with it it's from from what era is that it's poem? three four hundred years ago so there are different versions of it but it says yeah well i should have known not to ask a translator about one favorite phrase in <laughs> as i was saying it i knew wait a minute you're gonna give me an answer i want here yeah uh, what's your favorite destination within china I went to Yuncheng and it's a beautiful place, lots of history around, you know, you get the Yellow River. It it was a major battlefield for hundreds of years. There is one of the um, few surviving Yun dynasty temple there. Right. Awesome. If you left China, what would you miss the most and what would you miss the least? Definitely Cantonese food. Grew up that region. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, when I think about Cantonese food, that's the food that you can find the most outside of China. Yes, but most of the time you can't get the ingredients right, so it never Ah, tastes right. Right. Is there anything that still mystifies you about life in China? Um, people can really spend and shop. Oh, yeah. Like, (laughs) 
especially when I was still working in like an office, you know, building environment, mm. you kind of go out with, at lunch with colleagues and mm. just like, why are you looking at that? That's really expensive. That willingness to spend still mystifies me because I think in my mind, I'm still a poor student. <laughs> I haven't quite left that mentality yet. Right. Isn't that funny? Because actually the reputation of the Chinese in general is that they're good savers, but but you're right. They're good savers and good spender at the same time, mm -hmm. which which is I think that is a philosophical question. <laughs> <laughs> so, where's your favorite place to go eat or drink or just hang out? Well, my go-to restaurants if friends come to town in Shanghai would be Spicy Moment oh. on Wu Yanlu is yeah. a Hunan restaurant. Um, I particularly like it because it's very difficult to get good Cantonese food here. Mm. Good in the sense that Cantonese food is not just about ingredients or taste or flavorings, but you have to fry everything on a very, 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 very hot wok. Mm. And that is a particular taste. Like you can't really describe it. It's mm. not like a flavor, salty or sweet. But if you fry something on a very hot wok, it tastes different from a non-hot wok. Mm. And, and is it also a wok that's been fried before and has some residual taste from a previous? No, no, no. no. It, it, it is not like a flavor type taste, but that is something. It, it it's like cooking something on wood, on coal, mm. or on gas, mm. or on electric. They taste different, and I love that restaurant because even though okay, Hunan food tastes very different from Cantonese food, mm. but that taste of fire is in it. Very good. What's the best or worst purchase you've made in China? Well, it's not exactly a purchase, but I would say adopting and rescuing our dogs and cats. Right. You know. Go on then. What's the menagerie? We adopted one dog off the internet because we saw the picture and it's very cute. And then we kept thinking about that picture and then eventually reach out and the dog hasn't been adopted. The poor thing. He, he was eight or nine years old when we adopted him. Mm. And then we also picked up um, a little Yorkie on the street. Oh, just wandering around? Uh, probably been abandoned. Mm. Um, she couldn't walk and she got a big tumour on her breast. Oh, wow. No one thought she was going to live for many months, but now we've had her for a year and a half and she's walking very well. Wow. And then the last animal we picked up was um, a cat on a rainy day and he was very, very skinny, but he's actually an enormous cat and he's got a moustache <laughs> like... Uh, not a certain German leader. Yes. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, or, or you could say Charlie Chaplin or Freddie okay. Mercury, but we name him after Magnum P.I., so he's called Mognum. Oh, Mognum. Oh, yeah. God, that's good. Mognum. Yeah. Well, you know I'm going to have to ask you for photos, so we'll, yeah. we'll put that on our Instagram yeah. later. Yeah. And what's your favourite WeChat sticker? Oh, I, I like the WeChat pups, the green one and the white one. Oh, I love those. Oh, I yeah. always use those. Yeah, they're, they're my favourite. Yeah. Do you have Do you have a, a particular sticker that you like the most? Um, I think I like most of them. I think they're one of them just like walk off and take a dump. Oh, really? <laughs> I think there was one that just sort of like poo. <laughs> okay, well, if you can find that, then yeah, send it. That's a, yeah, definitely I'll put that online too. Yeah, yeah, I don't think I made it up. I think it's real. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And what's your go-to song to sing at KTV? Oh, gosh, I don't really. I mean, I either like some sort of 80s Hong Kong TV theme song. Mm. Or try very miserably and impossibly to sing um, this Chinese band called New Pants. Sing Kuzi. <laughs> okay. But yeah, it's impossible. <laughs> We're very bad at karaoke. 
And finally, what other China-related media or sources uh, of information do you rely on? Um, I quite like Six Tone. It's an English language news website, but I think it it was a site started to give a different perspective on China mm. beyond maybe sort of grand politics mm. or economics. This is much more about people. Very good. Well, thank you so much, yeah. Gigi. That was You're welcome. Thank really you for having me. Yeah. And I have the final part of the interview is, of course, the referral. Oh yes, yes. So, so if there was someone who is the most interesting person who you think I should interview next, who would it be? So um, I think it it would be great if you could interview um Sammy Liu. Um, she lives in Beijing and she's the founder of um, um a, an art gallery called um Tabula Rasa. Um, she's got one project at this gallery called Almost Art, where she works with people who make art but weren't trained in art school. And I find that really, really interesting. Not the usual thing you would see. Well, I can't wait to meet her, Sammy, right? Yeah, Sammy. Yes. Great. Well, I'm gonna obviously pack my bag and go and see her. Thanks so yeah. much, Gigi. Oh, thank you. So part of the fun of recording this series has been in seeing the random connections between guests. In the case of Gigi, the answer that she gave about her best purchase in China being her rescue pets was the same as the answer given by Eric Olander, the journalist from episode three. And who would have predicted that Gigi would be connected to Michael Z, the symmetry breakfast Instagram influencer from episode seven, by the fact that both of them spent time working at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. I didn't account for mentioning that place twice in a series about China. The part about Gigi's interview which resonated the most with me was when she said that the starting point to writing is thinking about who your audience is. When I heard her say this while working on the edit of the episode, my immediate thought this time was that she's wrong. You should just write what you feel like, and your starting point shouldn't be the audience. It should be finding your own authentic voice from within. But then, the more I thought about it, the more I tend to actually agree with her. And it inspired me to write a short piece about this on LinkedIn. So, in case we're not already connected on LinkedIn, then please look me up. As I mentioned before in this series, LinkedIn is a very interesting platform for content about China because it's the one global social media platform which isn't totally blocked here. So you can really see the difference of opinions between people on both internet ecosystems. I've been writing a few articles there recently, and the comments there have been fascinating to read. As for the rest of social media content for this episode, you can see all of the images relating to today's chat as usual on Instagram and Facebook. We're at Mosaic of China there, and for WeChat, you can add me on my profile Oscar one o eight seven seven, and I'll add you to the group there myself. There's Gigi with her object, her favorite sticker, of course, a photo of her cat that looks like、uh, Charlie Chaplin. Photos of Gigi presenting the published book and the translating team that she worked with too, as well as a very nice display of the Legends of the Condor Heroes book at Kinokuniya in Singapore, which is still my favourite bookshop in the world. I think. I think the display is still there, if I'm not mistaken. So if there are any listeners in Singapore, then please send me a photo. Mosaic of China is me, Oscar Fuchs. Artwork by Danny Newell and extra support from Milo De Prieto and Alston Gong. See you next time.